1: Welcome again to our podcast, GamesAtWork.biz, which is your weekly technology show. And my name is Andy Piper. Here I am on a Friday recording with my friends Michael Martin and Michael Rowe. Really excited to be here. Uh, and Mr. Rowe, how are you this week?
0: Hi, Andy. I am. I am doing just peachy keen, fine, and well. And I'm excited that we have Michael Martin with us too.
2: Folks, we have such a fun show here to share. I can't wait to get to it. So I, l- let's do, shall we? And let's kick things off with um, some fun in VR land because the first use case that I think of, of uh, using VR is to do my expenses. And playing with Concur in virtual reality um, uh, sounds a, like a lot of fun. I would do air quotes, but that might trigger something. Um. <laughs> What did you guys think about the experience of, I mean, it's it's like a PowerPoint, like anything else that we've seen here for a long time, showing up as a screen in VR. What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, so, Meta, this is a, a story from TechCrunch about the MetaQuest uh, 3, uh, which has full pass through, color pass through, um, and has had for some time. The Quest has had the ability to bring up uh, screens and, and things, um, certainly it's, being possible to have, for example, back when the Firefox browser was available on the Quest, I don't think that one's available now. Um, I've previously had multiple Firefox displays around me, um, not with nice. the full pass through, but uh, this is using uh, desktop apps. And yeah, I it look this is exactly what Apple showed <laughs> with the Vision <laughs> Pro. They were showing it as a, an app platform rather than a games platform. So I mm-hmm. don't think this is particularly surprising. I think the the point here is to make a statement about, look, when we're all wearing VR headsets to do this stuff, will we still be doing our expenses reports? Well, if, we'll probably still need to do them. Um, and this is what it would look like and does look like right now in the Quest 3. I... Oh. <laughs>
0: To to me, it actually makes you go, I should get one of these, right? Because Apple's going to be late. They tend to be late. Uh, Or at least the the two would have been fine, too. I almost bought one of those Uh, because, you know, the ability to have multiple desktops available is something we – I mean, we're doing it right now on our various computers. Either we have multiple monitors or we're doing multiple desktops that you slide left and right within a monitor or both. Right, um, and it's it, it's a use case that just
1: makes sense, yes, right I think so. I, I think it does. Um, well done,: yeah, I think it does, and I think that uh, you know, of course it, they're making a joke about the mundane nature of doing your expenses or whatever, but I think it's pretty smart of Meta to have brought the quest three out. So fast, um, and and mm. and so far ahead yeah. of of the Vision Pro. I've said before that I probably would upgrade to it if they offered a simple path for me to do so, and they don't. Um, I have to get rid of my existing one myself, or or find another use for it. And I don't think that that would I would straightforwardly do that. I know our friend Epred has decided to use his Quest 2 as his PC gaming headset, and have the Quest 3 yep. as sort of the family headset that's available downstairs. So. Um, that's an option. That's not, not a use case I would well, use.
0: It, it It's interesting, and I, I don't know enough about the three here, but if you and I were both in the same virtual space, could I see your desktop? I don't think so. Because what it would remind me,
1: should be what able to that share. use
0: case reminds me of is back when we did Dogger Nation and we would record in our virtual studio, yeah. right? Yeah. And we could have put our articles up on a
2: shared screen in that space yeah i don't think and then just walk across them you know one to
1: the next that's a different that's a different experience right you're talking there about having a shared virtual virtual entire room space whereas this is talking about floating things from your environment into your visual space i don't know is the answer but uh, i would find it uh, unlikely initially
0: well there was a was it this article um I think it was this article talking about may have been the the, the next article anyway, talking about going to a virtual coffee shop and overhearing what other people were doing.
1: Yes, it's that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the next
2: one. That's the next one. But but the, the notion here of being able to see and the pass through is quite quite good. I mean, even though you, you look like you can't see because you're wearing one of these, you know, Stormtrooper-esque kind of, you know, goggles setups, the, the cameras on it allow you to see through and be able to do things. So why not? Yeah. Right? And, and the idea of muting other people, not, not a bad thing if there's like distracting noises in the background and you don't want to hear them, which is maybe one of the things you were thinking about for that other article.
0: Well, then I I was actually thinking of the shared workspace, right? And, you know, one of the big things of of, uh, companies trying to force back to the office is because they want people to have those serendipitous conversations and being able to look over and say, oh, oh, hey, let me help you over there and walk over to their desktop and like point at their screen and stuff. And so if I have a first article shared, uh, if I have multiple workspaces kind of floating around my head, Mm-hmm. And then I go into a second article, shared workspace. Can I share my workspaces in that virtual shared workspace? Well,
1: okay. So th- this is specifically at the end of the TechCrunch article where it talks about this, this this idea of your virtual coffee shop. And it's using an app called Immersed, which puts you into a, a public shared environment, which it looks like a virtual cafe, which sounds interesting. I haven't tried this, but I've just popped over to the Immersed.com website. And the first thing it, tell, it says is empower work with spatial computing. Oh, now that was a word that Apple hmm. used a lot. But having hmm. said that, I didn't. I don't know whether Immersed had spatial computing on their website before the the Vision Pro event, because we know that yeah, spatial computing yeah. has been used by other people in the past. But absolutely, it shows you this uh, on their website on the on the front page. There, it shows you this uh, experience Both solo and remote. Absolutely, where, yep. where you've got these things. So. Uh, but you need a desktop agent to to run stuff uh, off of your computer on into the into the VR environment. It also shows you uh, it working across multiple brands of headset. The, the Quest being one of them, but Visor, Pico 4, and XR Elite being others from other other manufacturers. We should probably move along. Very cool. Though we've got something related. Um, yes. About the Quest uh, and Meta's uh, experience, which is about an update to Horizons, Horizon Worlds. Uh, which is going to show you this is a story on the verge. um, they've done an update. It's going to show you uh, how long you've been in there. <laughs> time spent. So how long have you been in there this week? Andy? Um, me zero this week. But it does also <laughs> refer to, I believe it refers to uh, time is divided between playing in VR and on web mobile, and I haven't yet even accessed Horizon World via web or mobile. Uh, and I, I don't remember I set whether it up, but I never logged in you? after that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember being prompted to do it. I actually went into the Quest app earlier in the week on my phone hoping to put the new Assassin's Creed VR game that's coming out next month onto my wishlist or onto my pre-order list, and there's no way to do it, which I found weird. I'm sure there were other games that I have purchased on that platform before where I either pre-ordered or, or wishlisted. But anywho, um, yeah, I mean, it makes the point that Roblox and Fortnite are still much more popular than Horizon Worlds, but they're continuing to invest, which which is a good thing. I mean, it makes
2: sense. So so moving right along to our next article from Inverse this week, uh, I loved this yeah. because it's talking about the notion of what are the logical limits of the video game experience in terms of realism? And the, the answer is you could wind up being very photorealistic. And there's plenty of games that do attempt to do this and get past the uncanny valley and, and or ones that kind of jerk you back into oh yeah wait a minute this is a game it's not uh, i'm not watching a movie and i I was thinking to myself that they're one of the reasons why i like 8-bit style games is because it's very clear it's a game um and it's not confusing anybody that it's supposed to be something else so andy you've you've got a perspective here I'm, i'm i'm seeing it come
1: yeah, I, I, I was the one of the three of us that shared this article and it, it struck me um, as really interesting for similar reasons, Michael. But I think w- what you just said about enjoying 8-bit games and uh, it being obvious that it's a game, I think that, that is beside the point. I think the gameplay, the game, pl- the, the, the enjoyment of mm, the, the point. game, where he goes in a lot to, well, look at the success of the Switch and all of the Nintendo consoles, more or less. Uh, the Wii U sometimes gets a... Gets a bad rap, but um, all of them Nintendo consoles, in spite of being technically inferior to the other consoles in their generation from other manufacturers, have all been wildly successful because Nintendo has had such a great track record and has had such successful franchises with Mario, Zelda, and and the others, um, and just and their focus on sort of the family-friendly fun aspects of things, and I think that. This is what struck me. I think a lot of the games that I've been most engaged and excited by in the last few years have been indie games that have either had a very different art style or storytelling style and haven't... Look, I love the AAA games. Um, I'm watching, uh, watching someone play through the latest Assassin's Creed and, and actually the previous one again because we're really into that and, it's, and the story is really good. And the graphics are really good and you can stop and look at a sunset and think, wow, all of these sun rays beaming across the landscape is really pretty, but I really enjoy things that have a slightly different angle on the art, uh, and, uh, and on the gameplay and, and, and on the storytelling. So I think that, that, yeah, there's, there's, a, there is probably only so far that there's point in going to with the graphics. Yeah, I,
0: I, I got two things. One, first, a disclaimer. The author of this article is not related to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, and the second, you know, I, I think you make the exact right point, Andy. And it's it's the graphic fidelity of a game has nothing to do with whether or not it's a good game. Right? It's gameplay, story, mechanics, all that stuff make good games And graphic fidelity may make you like it more or less for the artwork, right? But you can have a beautifully rendered game that is crap to play, and I've played plenty of those. (laughs) And you could have some that, you know, Michael, to your point, that are simple 8-bit games that are extremely enjoyable and and the graphics are almost secondary to the fact. It's it's what's the enjoyment factor of
1: the gameplay that I think takes priority. It also talks to the enduring... Popularity of a few of the current slash last generation console games and, and PC games: mm-hmm. The Sims 4, um, Grand Theft Auto 5. I mean, these games are a decade old. You know, uh-huh. um, that's that's really weird to think about. But that's how all those games are when they first came out. From where they first came out, they've they've had investment, they've had incremental updates, but the it's mostly been they've they've got successful gameplay elements and a community of people that enjoy the games. It doesn't matter whether they get upgraded or come out with stuff that is at the top level of visual fidelity. The games are fun There's people are playing them. So I think that yeah. I th- the story in this particular piece is, is really cleverly written because they're referring to, again, another game from a decade ago where at first glance somebody mistakes it, or a TV show or a movie, because you know it, it looked yeah. so good at the time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think we probably have gone past that point already. There, there's there's always further we can go, but it's about how fun the game is. <laughs> so, exactly. so that's that is
2: that is what really struck me too, and I'm glad you you landed there because because there's an angle in my mind or a graph <clears throat> that as you get more and more photorealistic, um, I could see where the fun begins to diminish because. If you're doing a cooking game, just to pick one out of random, uh, and it becomes more and more and more real, then it looks like work. Yeah. Then, then it then it, it, it's not it's not necessarily as fun anymore. It's more like work.
0: I I had that problem with Doom three. <laughs> Doom three just got too scary. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Right when okay. it was all cartoon and eight bit, that was fun. And it was like almost photorealistic creatures coming at you and lighting and everything else. It's like,
2: well, this isn't fun anymore. (laughs) So let's use this as a launch point for the next article, Mm -hmm. which is all talking about being photorealistic and leveraging AI. So The Verge has an intriguing article about a concept called data poisoning. So I found this, read a little bit about it. Michael, I know you've heard some podcasts about it too this week. Um, MIT technology review. This, is this in our wheelhouse? I love it. The notion yep. here is that artists are able to ensure that what they create cannot be subsumed into the large language models by following these data poisoning oh. techniques and having then anything that's trained on these images come out with something different. So it's a way of protecting. Now it feels a little cat and mouse to it's me. to right? I, right?
0: I think it's, it's even worse than that, right? Because it, it's, truly data poisoning. So you could hide inappropriate stuff in images to poison a data set, right? Mm. Uh, So not just from an artist protection, copyright protection type situation, but from actually messing with the model itself. Uh, So what this leads you to, and you're right, cat and mouse, uh, but it leads you to a point where hopefully the creator's of these LLMs will spend time with appropriate curation and permissions to get the models contained based off of stuff that they're supposed to have and not just hoovering up the entire net.
1: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my my tech grump's guest hat on yes. now and say, look, I've been wanting that hat. Look at <laughs> the last twenty years of digital progress online. We are still fighting spam and uh, uh, across multiple media, um, we used to have, I used to run a Linux box, I used to run, uh, um, you know, as a service and grab my mail from multiple pop providers and then run spam assassin and train, uh, use spam assassin to, and train spam assassin to, to filter out the junk before it would give me a sort of, let's say 50% undejunked thing. And then I moved to Gmail, and of course, Google does most of that for me. I say most because it's get, so it gets uh, let some, some through because sometimes people figure out how to get around it. As you, you, you write to describe it as cat and mouse, I describe, I would describe it as a digital arms race. And, yeah. and it's just another, uh, another iteration of that. I think we're going to see the story here goes through several of the efforts to figure out how best to moderate or control this space. One of them being Adobe's suggestion of having a mark to flag things. Now that only works if everybody uses it and is willing to use it. And then that defeats the purpose in some cases of, of doing, of doing this. Uh, the UK's just changed the name. I think of its of its AI task force to something like the safe AI center or something along those lines. I'm one of uh, a, a LinkedIn contact of mine works there and I briefly glimpsed it on their LinkedIn update today but I can't, can't quote it for sure. I think that there will be probably be an effort to suggest ways to use things legitimately and do things you know, in, in a meaningful, sensible way that, that makes sense. And then there will be bad people who will continue to try to do the worst things and get around whatever things are put in their way. And I think we just have to, unfortunately, uh, accept that that's the nature of the world we live in. And now I will get back off my tech rump soapbox, <laughs> but not for long. I think we
0: should stay there, <laughs> not for long. The next
2: article leads right into that too, doesn't it? Well, this this next article actually, you and
0: I, uh, the three of us, talked about this probably five or six months ago. This yeah. idea, uh, and I've had conversations with people at. Uh, on this same topic, too, on, you know, if we don't set up some kind of GAN situation, uh-huh. right, the the use of generative AI will, by definition of the data it ingests into it, will over time degrade. And that's exactly what this article tries to demonstrate through an experiment, right? Uh, now, I think this experiment is is interesting. It may be a little simplified, but you're trying to make a point, right? Um, and I, I I look at it from the standpoint of, in the discussion that I've had with people very recently working on some of this stuff of, if you take 20% of your code is generated code, over time, that 20% will be in the corpus that is consumed for the next iteration of the model, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And you will continue to get more to... Um, I don't want to use the term "lowest common denominator" code, <laughs> right? But an oversimplified model of what code should be or could be, right? Uh, and it reduces the ability to get high complex output. So you have to constantly inject human-written complex code generated by professional developers, etc., to
1: keep the model improving. This is if you take a different angle on this; it's the same problem. As you have in genetics, where you have a limited gene pool, and yes. and it doesn't diversify, right? It's it it, it it's the same well sense either. of <laughs> of evolutionary dead ends, and I think that's why a lot of folks are in serious uh, academia and tech looking at specifically the the current crop of LLM companies are saying these are dead ends. You know, there is no way for these things to evolve beyond the boundaries of the box that they have put themselves in into AGI as in general intelligence.
2: So, we're talking about code hemophilia, is really what it boils down to. Or, you know, the, the training model that is recursively trained on the training model, which is recursively trained on the training model. S- some of the papers cited in this article are talking about how improbable events are underestimated, which then creates situations where, yes, it's improbable, but it could have happened. And now you're getting back towards the average. Remember how we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, where architecture, design, all kinds of things are now getting skewed to the middle because it's
1: most likely. Can I just say that I love chatting with both of you and I wish sometimes that we would just record this because this is I <laughs> I come up with such incredibly thoughtful things sometimes well, and I just wish that we put had like you know saved that in a in a format that could be listened yeah. to or I could play back in the future and think wow I said some clever stuff that day.
0: And 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 by the way your clever stuff I'm going to use your term now on genetic <laughs> diversity. I, I'm going to use that in my discussions. I love the idea, and it just fits so it's, well. And and we don't want to, you know, become the uh,
2: uh, the uh, the
0: royals of coding. evolution. Yeah, we're internet. we're gonna
2: tm that. We're gonna tm. We're gonna tm it. Right. So the three of us, we've we've come up with something. Hopefully something new. But maybe we didn't. Maybe somebody else thought of it before. Who knows?
1: <laughs> I love talking it. of things that happened yeah. before.
2: Oh. Yes. Oh, Andy.
1: Internet artifacts. I mean, talk about this. I I can't take any credit other than me being the one of the three of us that saw this, uh, posted this week. I think it was even yesterday, where somebody, I want to say Andy Bayo, posted this to Mastodon, and it got reshared a few times. I use a couple of tools uh, for those that use uh, the Fediverse and Mastodon. Um, It doesn't have an algorithm, so it doesn't sort of rank your your timeline for you. And I use a couple of tools. I use one called Mermel and another called Fediview, and they are things where you can sign into them and then it will send you a digest once a day um, based on an algorithm to make sure that you're not missing things that a bunch of your friends were talking about while you weren't paying attention. So with Mermel, for example, it sends me a message at 6pm every day to say, these are the top 10 links that were shared that more than three or four people, or you can specify the threshold... And that's how I came across the Internet Artifacts website yesterday. Neil n e a l dot fun slash Internet Artifacts. Now I'm a historian, as we've talked about before, and it gives you this rather beautiful website designed as a sort of uh, museum-type timeline that you can walk through with the years posted at the across the top, and you can scroll through meaningful um, visual. Memories of how the internet evolved. So the very first one, 1977, is a map of ARPANET, which was a precursor to the internet. Um, and then you click through. It's done in this lovely classical style, where every thing sits on a on a pillar.
0: I, I I love the screen resolution changes and the fonts. Yes, they, they
1: match the terminals in those days. It's brilliant, it's beautiful, brilliantly done. It really is really nicely done and. It's again. It's one of those things that's meaningful to the three of us because we've all lived through those periods. Um, and yeah. I am curious to know what I won't. I hesitate to call them digital natives, but folks that you know grew up have grown up with the internet existing, um, and the internet existing in its current form um, would make of a lot of these things that you see up through the eighties and nineties uh, in here. Do-
0: do, do you ex-coffee. recognize
1: the editor being used for Morris? Uh, you have to tell me the which developer editor. You have to tell me which uh, uh, year you're 1988. in. Nineteen eighty-eight. Nineteen eighty-eight. That is. Uh, I do not know. It says Fido News at the top. I do not know who the editor is. No, no, no. Uh, go to oh, Morris. I'm, I'm, no, Warm. you're right. I'm on eighty-nine. Oh, that is um, WordPerfect. No. No, no of I
0: think it's it's Turbo C.
1: Right. Yes, of course it's it's Corel's Turbo it's, C it's editor. It's that blue screen with that menu bar across the top, which is why it made me immediately think of WordPerfect five point one. But uh, no, you're right. It's a C. It's a. It's it could have
0: been a WordStar editor though. Mm. But it,
1: it just the uh, anyway.
0: <laughs> I think is I that- have that the CDs. Uh, sorry, the floppies for those somewhere in my archive.
2: We should encourage people to go and peruse. And this is a yes. nice thing that follows on, Andy, the points you were raising about the museums well, and the digital museums, right? Because this is a digital museum of
1: digital… Output. It follows on very nicely and um, pairs very well with um, that Mosaic uh, anniversary event I went to a couple of weeks ago that we spoke about on the show. And I yeah. still haven't blogged about so I might somehow try to combine the two <laughs> things in my blog post this weekend, which I will definitely, definitely write.
2: Sure. <laughs> for sure. You, you, did get a, you did get a newsletter out I did, though. So I that's did. good. Yes. It was enjoyable too. All right. So um we, we don't know whether large language models are being used for this, so suggest probably not, but Michael, I'm sure this attracted your attention about the jet propulsion laboratory Voyager team trying to send firmware across internets and extranet and interstellar space to get the Voyager uh happy once more. So hope, hopefully, hopefully it's being done in a very careful way, so we don't uh, bork the system.
1: I mean, this right. is—I mean—they're trying to fix it, right? I mean, yeah. they're, so they're, yeah. they're not trying to bork it, but it is just amazing, given how far away those two um, spacecraft are from from our planet. It's just well, this- yeah, it's incredible that they're able that they're, they're able to do it, willing to do it, and yeah, it's mind blowing. But-
0: the most amazing thing to me is, is what happened right before this, right, which is where it was out of alignment by two degrees and they had to um, fix the system by basically just screaming out to it <laughs> so that it could
2: readjust the antenna gain to point at the right location. So winding up this week, guys, uh, we've got a couple of articles that kind of relate to one another. Um, The NPR public radio uh, website has a story about climate solutions, and it's focusing on Paris of all places to have all the things you might need within 15 minutes of one another. And it's an intriguing discussion about how density and populations and trees and a whole range of things can work together to create a solution that's um, actually been around for a really, really long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is Carlos Moreno, I think is how you pronounce this, or Moreno, uh, talking about an idea that's not just Paris, right? It's, It's to get cities to structure themselves in a way that in 15 minutes, whether it's walking, using public transportation or whatever, you as a citizen of that city have access to everything you need yeah which is just wonderful i think that, I, I really enjoyed this story
1: i think there was a, this was a thing in us public discourse uh, maybe in the last month or so and it when it when yeah. the same thing was repeated in in europe a lot of us were saying well we eh, yeah we we have that already um, because we're <laughs> yeah. not you know because of the nature of the continent and because of the, nat- the the differences in the way things are structured you all generally speaking in the us have Uh, A very heavily car-oriented existence, and you have to drive out to a mall and or or out of town and do things, whereas we have typically have city centers, town centers, and stuff more locally. And
0: and I think Andy, you and I talked about this when I picked you up from your hotel and drove you a half hour.
1: Well, I, I, I threw in. I threw in something else that came up uh, again this week, um, which was I think is very strongly related to this in terms of the the climate and the differences between uh, Europe and, and and the US and other places. But um, this was a really fun website, uh, the Dutch Life d- DutchCyclingLifestyle where you can go along, type in your zip code or location, uh, and it will then grab the Google Street View image and. Dutchify it to make it uh, into give you a sense of what that place would be like if it was pedestrianised and uh, more like the way that uh, the Netherlands structures its, uh, its environment. Yeah,
2: very cool. What, what a great way to wrap the AI and, and generative images back to the front for the stories here today. This is so delightful. It's almost,
1: almost as if this whole conversation we've just had off the cuff has uh, had a purpose.
2: Maybe it was even <laughs> planned. Who knows? <laughs> well, friends, uh, if uh, you enjoyed today's show, we we're, would we're, be, del- be delighted to have your ratings and your suggestions and subscriptions and the like. And you can also send us your stories that you think we ought to be talking about here. You, who knows what ideas or TMs come out of it in the future? Uh, you know the locales. Just do it. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back again very, very soon on gamesatwork.com biz see ya see ya see ya
0: you've been listening to games at the podcast about gaming technology and play we are part of the blueberry podcasting network and would like to thank the band random encounters for their song big blue you can follow us on twitter at games at work underscore biz or at our website at games at work